Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with David Brown, who's the Chief Investment Officer of Cook Island Superinnovation Fund. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. We met a while ago, and I think at that stage you were uh, representing FCOL, the Private Equity and Venture Capital Association in Australia. And you have a little bit of a background in, in private equity as well. Um, with FIFMC, you were the head of private markets, looking also at private equity. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to investing and how you came to specialize in sort of the private equity space? Yeah, thank you. Uh, look, I, I've been around for absolutely ever. I think I'm ancient, but um, <laughs> uh, but thank you for asking that. I Yeah, look, I, I, uh, look I'm I in New Zealand. I graduated from uh, from uh, commerce, uh, uh, accounting, economics, general business degree from Auckland um, in, in October of uh of uh, 87 and i just remember coming home from my last exam from university and saying i think i've just done an 80s degree and uh, <laughs> the, the, you know the place ground to a halt and uh, for those who remember that that period of history but my i had a internship at uh, ipac in sydney over right. the summer and they asked me to stay so my first job was in australia in sydney i thought i'd, I'd died and gone to heaven i was sitting at a uh, uh, you know, at, at Circular Quay, about to catch the the ferry to Manly, and I think this has got to be the best bus stop in the world. But um, like a fool, I then went off to uh, London and uh, worked in in various roles in 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 the city in in London. One of which was at uh, Euromoney, a uh, financial services publication, uh, sort of specialist in the bond markets and so forth. And then got a job at Standard Life in Edinburgh. And being a card-carrying POM with a British passport, a Scottish passport at least, I moved to Edinburgh and worked in the investment team at uh, Standard Life before they became Standard Life Investments in Apple Aberdeen. So that was a fantastic place and uh, worked as an analyst there, very much on the listed space and advising clients on strategy. So that ended up being my, my space. So I was an advisor. Um, sort of trying to figure out from our products how we put, you know, achieve their investment goals. Uh, lots of different clients with different liability models. There were insurance companies, there were um, pension funds, there were endowment funds, there were family offices, things like that. So everyone's got a different. So this kind of actuarial link between the, uh, you know, the liability requirements and the the risk and return response from investment. And one of the products they were developing was their private equity pool, standard life private equity investors. Johnny Maxwell ran that one. So when I came back to Brisbane, my wife's Australian, um, I was working for QIC, and they said, what's this private equity thing? Should we do it? And I said, oh, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a great premium. Oh, but that's all just, um, you know, smoke and mirrors. It's all valuations. And I said, well, uh, yes and no, it's a bit more complicated than that, and don't bother doing it if, unless you do it properly. So... I wrote a strategy piece on why private markets, and that was infrastructure and private equity. And I worked for Brad Holtzberger, who put in place the strategy for QIC. We worked with Doug McTaggart. Uh, we hired Marcus Simpson and Ross uh, for private equity. Ross Israel Martina Pathanesi for um, infrastructure out of the strategy papers and the business plans that I wrote. And it was all about implementation. It has to be top-notch or forget it. I mean, in, in, in an asset class that is not from a perfect market, not from an efficient market, it is actually about execution skill. And the greatest risk is not doing it properly. Uh, it wasn't about buying a piece of the beta. Yeah. 
in private markets. They already had a very successful uh, real estate uh, team, obviously, with the QIC, and they they got that. They understood that concept. So that that really did um, resonate, I think, in QIC and at QSuper at the time. And uh, the rest is history. I think both of those teams went on to you know produce very um, very effective and very successful teams. I like to think off my game plan, <laughs> but uh, there's certainly a lot of skill that they, you know, they, 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 they had good wisdom. And I think this is one of my points too. Don't, you know, skimp, <laughs> you know, you need to get good quality teams in place. Yeah. So that strategy piece, uh, once again, QICR's advising clients, um, different liabilities, um, different models. Well, I think we had the art gallery, we had the children's hospital. I think I, I think we had a, um, I think at one stage I had a client who was a, a religious order of nuns and we showed them the, uh, the, the 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 issue the the you know the the actuarial charts of you know of where the returns could go from the various asset classes, and most clients say look at the downside, <laughs> whereas these nuns said look at the upside. <laughs> so I suddenly realised you know when your investment horizon is centuries, <laughs> till yes. till kingdom come, uh, literally they saw the opportunity. So I think in all of those roles. It was sort of a strategy role. Yeah. And I guess my practical experience is, you know, investment had, had understood what it takes to implement. So I was, it was a good place to be as, a, as an advisor from that point of view. When I went to VFMC, that was about a cultural change at VFMC. And we developed a private markets team that was with Leo de Beaver. Uh, we changed VFMC um dramatically and I you know a lot of that's still there although they've pulled back from a lot of their um, direct implementation and certainly in private markets they have but uh, we, we we did some some interesting things and 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 were very successful in terms of returns uh, for the state of Victoria I, I, I calculated one time I've personally made several hundred million for the uh, taxpayers of Victoria but they they closed the the program down. It was after the GFC. I think there was a general concern on the board from the board as to, you know, the sort of risks that were in a portfolio that they didn't fully understand. We, you know, pulled our hair out trying to explain that we could uh, do all sorts of great things. But there was, it, it was, uh, that was a difficult time. I, th I think it was ultimately political at the end. I think there was a Victorian government had changed. The uh, the new government uh, were insisting that a uh, state employers should tell some staff. And I think they had a great private equity program and infrastructure program in place at VFMC. And the poor guys there, I think they really were forced with a choice. What do we do? Um, so I, there were all sorts of reasons. Perhaps I'll never know. But they closed the program down. Yeah. Um, it continued to be their best performing asset class for years later. Which, from a strategist's point of view, I thought um, that just vindicates <laughs> me. I was right all along. <laughs> and um, I think it earned them all bonuses. I think there was one year, not long after that, you know, let us all go, that um, I calculated from their other asset classes, you know, very poor or negative alpha. And the private markets program was pumping. So I think I earned other people bonuses. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so do you still keep an eye on sort of what's happening in the private equity space? I mean, I, I sort of remember having a, a, a sort of a broad level discussion with you about innovation and commercialization of, of private equity and venture capital projects. Yeah, look, I do. I, I don't know much about the Australian market these days. Look, it's it's not something that I, you know, I, I hear stories, I catch up with people. But um, I would love to see it. Well, I suppose it has. It, it has been accepted. I think there was that brief period when when it was out of fashion. But like I said before, I, I somehow feel vindicated that it has gone on to be, you know, universally accepted as a very legitimate and powerfully positive part of the portfolio. There was that time in Australia where we were really uh, trying to make a case for something uh, that, you know, a lot of the boards were fairly sceptical about. And certainly we found, you know, with QIC and QSuper, there was a long process where we did a very thorough process of education and 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 really under, giving a sense of what it was going to feel like. 
I think by the time I got to VFMC, that process had never been, never happened. Yeah. So you have to restump the house, and um, and that didn't happen. And I think in Melbourne there was a lot of scepticism about private equity. I remember um, bumping. Well, my, my super was Aussie super. I'm a proud member of Australian super. And Mark Delaney and, and Alana Rubin actually had coffee with them after it was closed down at VFMC. And I think I had that year um, my Aussie super growth option had done you know zero point zero zero one percent. And I said even my evil private equity uh, uh, you know fund had done you know eight and a half percent in that year. And I think Mark Delaney just laughed and said, you know, you, you bastard or something like that. He got it and laughed loudly and bought the coffee. And Alana Rubin said to me, she said, oh, well, you wait for the valuations. They'll all come down. Yeah. And I said, I'll, I'll call you back next year, next two years for a coffee. <laughs> and, uh, so, and look, they haven't. You know, I think there's lots of doom and gloom about too much money being raised in private equity and, and the capital overhang. But at the end of the day, it challenges uh, people who come from an efficient markets hypothesis background. Yeah, you know, the, it is. It's not a perfect market, and it is the. It's the alpha of change. You buy a company, you change its capital structure, and like some Heisenberg principle, where you. Um, effect, you know, where the observer actually changes the outcome. You are the observer the day after you've bought it. It's a different beast because you change the capital structure and then you change it and then you sell it. And it's exit focused. It is very much, it's not private equity unless it's exit focused in a classical sense. The fashion now is more of a direct equity where people hold a company and they hold it for the dividend or some intrinsic value or some slow emergence of, of, of some capital appreciation. That's a very different beast. I think classical private equity is about change and it's grappling with change and it's about an exit focus to justify that change. Once you understand those sort of two differences, I think you can, you can be clear about where it fits in your strategy. But I'm glad to see that both types of private equity and direct equity are now commonly considered to be uh, ordinary and, 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 and the funds are putting resources and talent behind, like I wrote to QSuper 15 years ago, if not more, um, or 20, nearly 20 years ago now, probably those first papers around the year 2000, 2001. You know, like I wrote, it's about execution. If you're not going to do it properly, don't attempt to do it because there are risks, but they're different risks. Yeah, from a from a listed market. Yeah, I think anecdotally as well, this there seems to be more interest in the private market space because maybe public markets have become a little bit too efficient and it's harder to make money there. Look, I think they always have been. Um, I remember, I think it was on. Uh, OP Trust in in Toronto. Mm. Uh, at about the same time, we were doing our work for QIC. We were speaking to them. They had had spent you know a couple of million dollars Canadian or something with McKinsey at the time to decide how to implement a private markets program. And their their approach was say where you can add value it makes sense to back with good resources. Where you can't add value, that's a commodity. So they ended up with two offices. Their listed team were in sort of a, you know, uh, an office in the outer outer fringe uh, um, office district of Toronto with with grey carpet squares and eventually sort of made it passive or (laughs) whatever they did. And it was sort of a, a... a lower rent approach, if you like. Their private markets team was in in, in the centre of town with some very expensive people. Um, look, I don't know how their results um, went, but it was this concept of listed markets are very hard to make um, consistent alpha 
unless you're doing something different or interesting. If it's just a commodity approach, you shouldn't be paying that much for it. Yeah, yeah. So we tended to have the opposite of that in Australia for a while. I think the super funds insourced um, in other areas, but um, yeah, I, I I would say that most of the super funds I see here now have very sophisticated private markets teams as well. They're devoting the resources in that space. But I think listed markets have always been very difficult. There's this mean reversion, if you like, and if you're if you're schooled in that, if you're brought up in that efficient markets hypothesis approach where alpha is 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 not a consistent uh, stream of return, it makes it very difficult to think of a market where there are information asymmetries and the investor is actually changing the investment instrument by being present. And that concept of grappling with change is a different philosophy. So at VFMC, Leo de Beaver set us up so we'd all be on one floor and that we would all be one team and that we would all have this, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a village of ideas where we're all communicating. And that worked to an extent, but we found uh, the water cooler discussion eventually quite difficult because the operating rhythm for the professionals in each of the teams was different. The listed guys would come in, they'd take the broker's reports, they'd um, put their trades on, they'd go to lunch, they do admin in the afternoon, and until unless it was um, results season, that was typically the 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 intense and intellectually stimulating, but but a very regular process. Whereas the private markets team, we were at a site visit, or we were uh, interviewing people, or we were talking to the lawyers, or we were talking to the engineers, or we were every day was different. Yeah, and our concept of um, what was important to spend time on was different. So that was an interesting, I think, experiment. And I think you know there are a number of funds that talk about trying to get their full investment team talking. Yeah, that's sort of the uh, the, the the total portfolio approach, where you basically get everybody around the table, and and, and you know challenge each other's ideas and at least have sort of a, a common idea. But from your experience, that sounds a little bit difficult to get all of, you know, the different workflows and, and, and sort of day-to-day challenges all aligned. Yeah, look, I think and with the best will and, you know, professionalism and even friendship between the people, we were a great team at, at VFMC at the time. We sort of all got on. But I remember we had a secondary uh, position in funds and funds of funds, a U.S. Uh, uh, college had a liquidity problem and they wanted to get rid of their portfolio of venture. It was held in a number of funds of funds. And I, um, and it was, you know, in, in buyout in private equity, there's a very clear way to measure what a secondary position is going to cost. But in a fund of fund position, that didn't exist in those days and certainly not in venture. So you could see what the gap between uh, what we were going to have to pay, which was an awful lot lower um, than than um, than actually the even the discounted secondary positions in the primary um, funds. So these were enormous di- uh, discounts that were really only available because there was a, a dislocation in the market. And um, I remember an investment committee we were talking about a. I think at a volatility arbitrage, we put about a billion that way and a billion the other way, and you make two smidgens of basis points of performance. We spoke about that for about two or three hours, and then we came along with our, you know, um, you know, between forty and sixty percent discounts to book on this on this venture, and, and I think I frightened people. I think there was a genuine sense of, um, but how would you value that? And I said, well, we'll we should probably change our valuation policy because it would be next quarter we would write that back up to book as per the, the manager advice. Um, um, I said, you know, let's go into our valuation policy and perhaps phase that repair. 
And while I'm explaining this, uh, they all go white across the table. Their faces <laughs> lose all the colour. And, and there's this sense of, and I think I think the fixed interest guy said, but what if it goes down? And I said, well, your stuff goes down too, doesn't it? And uh, and I and and then somebody said to me, uh, look, I think you said you would never buy a fund of funds because of all those fees. And I said, at those discounts, it's fees paid. Who paid them? I said it was the discount, and it was like I think in the past. I mean. These are intelligent people who fully understood what I was talking about. It was not, and I was not talking gibberish, but it was, I think it was just so jarring uh, in a listed space to have such discontinuities emerge in that EMH framework of thinking of the world. This didn't compute. It was a uh, an information asymmetry. Too much volatility. Uh... Well, it wouldn't have been volatile. I, I think the Future Fund picked it up and I was told later it was one of their best investments ever, you know. Um, but it was, I think I invalidated their career. <laughs> it was like suddenly your whole training in the listed markets is somehow invalidated by some smart aleck from private markets coming on. Now, we don't always do that. There's some disasters in private markets as well. You know, I'm not trying to say that we were, but that's a very good example of where the actual terms of discussion, the terms of reference become different. So the water cooler discussion does break down because our experience is different. Yeah, 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 I can imagine. And if you just look at, say, real estate teams and listed teams, you know, most most firms know that they're just different characters, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we, uh, we we've noticed as well with our forums that we've uh, organised. We, we've started doing a property forum in the last three years, and it's definitely a different different uh, approach to investing. Where I think it's it's more about the deals, more transactional, more uh, you know individual investments. Whereas most of the other conferences we do is more strategy and it's very long term. So you can definitely see it's a it's a different different mindset there. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about your involvement in the Pacific region. Um, you've been sort of uh, off and on involved since 2015, uh, starting off with a, a stint at Packwealth, which is an investment advisor in uh, Papua New Guinea, and then as chief investment officer of Nest Fund as well in, in PNG. So how did you get involved in this in this region? Packwealth advised um, NAS Fund, so it was really sort of the same job, I suppose. But uh, one, I, I jumped the fence from the advisor to the to the client. But um, look, Papua New Guinea after after VMFMC was was a way of sort of rolling up my sleeves and getting on with things. Um, it was probably one of the my, most professionally satisfying jobs I've ever had because you actually have to do things. <laughs> you don't have a team of analysts. Uh, although I did have local analysts, uh, and part of my role was to train them up and, and very smart, um, great people to work with. So um, that was fun. But it was it was in a illiquid currency like the PNG Kina, you have a lot of domestic assets, and then you have constrained capital markets. Uh, that are also illiquid. Their stock exchange is fairly illiquid in terms of trading capacity. So you have a lot of direct assets, and this is direct rather than private equity. This is in a, a classical direct, you hold them. Uh, and they also had a lot of assets that tended to be quite good businesses where the founder um, had created something quite amazing um, but had retired and sold it to the super fund. I remember saying, we're a super fund, not your pension fund. <laughs> it's like you get a, the talent goes to the golf course and the super fund's left with it. So we had a lot of triage, perhaps, of some of these direct deals that didn't quite fulfill their initial promise. Uh, so very hands-on. And I would say one of the biggest tasks there was actually governance. It was dealing with the boards of the investing companies. Um, as a shareholder, and uh, you know, seeing the latitude within the shareholders' agreement, uh, and this is a real skill that, say, private equity uses in in developed markets. The private equity GPs are expert at getting what they want from the board, 
and from the directors. And but the directors are still legally directors. Yeah. So there are a number of um, governance uh, improvements that I was able to do in PNG, and that that worked in both the listed space in PNG and the direct space. Um, one of the greatest compliments was when I when I finally left after five years was uh, the chairman of the competitor fund number one. Yeah. He bumped into me at the airport and he said, oh, look, now you've, you've, you've been able to really change the culture of governance, corporate governance in this country. And I thought, oh, really, I'm, I'm, flatter me some more. Tell me more. But I, I said, no, 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 no. He says, no, 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 you're being, you're, you're being too humble. He says, no, 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 you, you raised issues to do with corporate governance attitudes that are common in Australia that are not common here. And then I, you know, I'm a New Zealander, so I know. <laughs> <laughs> corporate governance in New Zealand, I think, would be ten years behind uh, um, Australia. But then, then other countries, there's still that attitude of directors are part of a, a special club, and the directors institutes about golf days, you know, and that existed in the world not that long ago, uh, even in Australia. And yeah. I. I'm old enough to remember when that was the case. There was a gentleman's club and it was men and they were directors and nobody questioned them. And yet we've moved and then I lived through those, you know, those eighties and the nineties where where uh, overseas corporate governance was important, you know, that helpers in, in the US, uh Hermes in, in the UK. The development of shareholder activism, institutions taking a concern for the corporate governance of the companies over which they 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 steward, they have stewardship for their clients, for their members, is actually something that's relatively new. Certainly in my lifetime of thirty years of a career. Uh, so when you go to PNG and it's a little bit behind in that, that's that should be no surprise. Yeah. So, so was everybody happy about you writing those questions? Uh, some of the directors just hate me. Um, <laughs> so, but the super funds love me. You know. So it was one of those sorts of situations. I think. I think the good directors understood it, and eventually, um, uh, you know, and, and by clashing with intelligent people, you you make more friends. Eventually, they came around. Yeah, good, good. It's also interesting because you mentioned number one, and I remember um, having a discussion as well about with number one about what constitutes risk in the sense of, you know, what is your domestic base. So, we, as an Australian super fund looking at a PNG sovereign bond at eight percent, they probably would go like, "Well, that's that's, that's pretty risky." But in PNG, that's sort of, you know, almost the risk-free rate, isn't it? I mean, was it hard mm. to sort of shift your thinking around, I'm actually working uh, uh, from a different economic basis than when you come from Australia and New Zealand? Yes, it was. Everything is recalibrated. Um, but, and, and, and that flowed through to a number of things, even, even the valuation pricing of our direct assets. Uh, so when our, our three-month T-bills were, were giving us 7.5%. Um, I was sort of saying to some of the vendors who were trying to sell us a company that, you know, bottled something or sold, or sold something, you know, how much more of a premium do we think, do you think we need to get from your company to, to convince us? And that equally went to our own estate, our own assets. What is the vendor going to have to accept from that dividend stream for us to achieve a return in excess of 7.5% from our T-bills that had been like that for several years? You know, it was, it was, uh, even the, the, long, the, long, the bonds were 9%, were, were, um, 10%. So... Risk premium and pricing and valuation metrics are entirely different in that environment. Um, so I think that that is a big issue. I think when we had that interesting discussion with our board, um, I said, what does this imply for the value of our assets if we were to sell them? Who would buy them? 
and at what price would they would a reasonable buyer um, buy them? But it's an interesting place that, that while you know traditional metrics sort of break down and you have to think of it triangulate perhaps um, to think of it in a different way, you can um, I think we're on the cusp of the world. You know, to the north were fast growing um, Southeast Asian countries where build it and they will come was the concept. To the south was, you know, the the Anglo-Australia-Pacific world where we had to build a model and the DCF had to work over it and there were thinner returns. So often you could be in a situation where you, your maths came up with one number, but uh, a rich family from Southeast Asia would come in and, like, double your number. But often we found, and you get that at the other, that's another dynamic in developing countries is it's not often institutional money. It'll be family money as well. And family money falls into two characteristics. One is very rich and, um, and, and, and strategic. And there's a reason why that, that family may pay double what you were willing to pay. And it's, and then no, they're not idiots. <laughs> so, so, but they, they can leverage it against something else. Usually it's, it's not an institutional market. It's a market where depending on who you talk to, you'll get a different number. But at the end of the day, we needed to audit our accounts for the, and, and have them valued by a KPMG or a Deloitte out of Brisbane. Yes. So what are we going to do? Uh, we even looked at trying to value from Singapore, and they were even more conservative than the, than the Australians. <laughs> so we get to Hong Kong. Um, and uh, so, so that was a nice thing, being outside of Australia. You're sort of free to get professional advice from anywhere. Um, but, yeah, there's a developed world where metrics have a certain structure and professional um, tram lines, if you like. And then there's a more vibrant developing world where people can pay for blue sky and they're not always wrong. Right. right, right. That's interesting, isn't it? So you're now the uh, CIO of the Cook Island Super Innovation Fund, where you work together with our good friend, uh, Damien Bedos, who is the CEO of the fund. What was sort of your brief when you came to the fund? Yeah, look, I think it was um, a very sophisticated brief. I think the board and Damien understood that the fund, though small in, in say, Australian terms, is huge in Cook Island terms, and even in a New Zealand context, it's not small. Um, but they could see that it was growing and that there was a future and that there were a number of things that they had to have in place if they were to get the future correct. They're going to make the right choices now. So I think it was very brave. I think their board decided to create a position for a chief investment officer um, and, and move it from a very sort of outsourced off-island fee taker position to a more a place where domestic decisions were made albeit in a global context and that they could do that more efficiently and get better outcomes and that they would develop a team and some internal skills so they were certainly understood the limitations of a small island and that we're never going to have a large investment team like a like an Australian super fund. It's not Melbourne. They they did understand that there are some things that, that could be improved. So I think it was very sophisticated. I mean if you if you talk to any of the the good thinkers about governance and superannuation, you know, the Thinking Ahead Institute uh, group or the you know the or the Rotman Institute or the Keith Ambitshire kind of approach. It was very much their thinking that the Cook Islands board and, and, and management had. So the brief was see what we've got, um, how can we improve it? And by the way, there are some government assets, direct assets that we might have to buy. Yeah. Uh, so this was during COVID. There are a couple of crown assets that the crown holding company owned. And um, could we look at them? Yeah, yeah. Because I think the, the fund started off with just having its money divided by two uh, fund managers. And I think from there it started developing a bit of a more sophisticated investment strategy. What, what, what is sort of the, 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 the investment portfolio now? 
Yeah, look, it was all outsourced um, and it was actively managed. It was all through Russell's um, in Auckland. It um, had a very New Zealand uh, asset allocation. It looked like sort of a KiwiSaver. Um, but what I recognised immediately was it, it, it actually is a pension fund. It, it ends in at least 75% of your retirement balance going into a pension for life, a pension for the life of your surviving spouse. So um, their policymakers decided that unlike Australia, uh, where you retire and can take your lump sum, and you know, buy a camper van and take your wife fishing in every river around Australia and die and leave her penniless. Um, <laughs> the, the idea would be it commutes to a post-retirement pension. So you know, we have lots of conferences in Australia trying to figure out what our retirement solution is. Whereas the Cook Arms organised this twenty years ago, but it does mean that the investment during the accumulation phase and even even beyond that is is a slightly different liability-driven exercise. An intellectual point of view, so we needed a slightly different strategy that wasn't just a retail mimic of what happened, what sold across the counters at banks in New Zealand. So that was number one. Um, number number two was that we had a sort of outsourced approach where we really only owned units in somebody else's collective investment vehicle. So we had no uh, custodian, we had no custodial function, we had no bank accounts overseas, those sorts of things. What we've ended up doing is, oh, the other thing was we were not getting any active return. So we had lots of active fees, lots of active attempts. But when we actually looked at the outcome, it was, it was, it was very little than the, than the actual uh, index would of the, of the SAA benchmark would indicate. So, um, We'll, there was a lot of sound and fury, but uh, signified nothing at the end, more than an index outcome. So we've gone to sort of a reference portfolio approach, and it's in uh, three ETFs, basically. Um, so there's more work to be done, um, but we're achieving the same results uh, for considerably less in terms of fees. And those fees go to the bottom line of our members. Um and they have also enhanced our internal operating systems in terms of uh, the reporting and the risk reporting and, and so forth. So uh, we've got another phase undertaken, under, undertaken this year that will really get us to a point where we can make more fee savings and we can start implementing uh, directly from Rarotonga. So um, that's quite exciting. Uh, and alongside that, there are some local enterprises and some enterprises across the Pacific where we we able to do some direct deals. Uh, so really the theme for 2023 and certainly after we get this admin project through will be to start looking at how we can do the value added beyond the reference portfolio. Yeah, so you sort of have the core in place and then you're looking at yeah. uh, um, some value adds and perhaps some direct assets. Correct, all of the above, and and they will be they will be assessed on on a on whether they improve the outcome beyond the reference portfolio in terms of return, risk, and fee. So um, yes, we may have to pay more, but if there's a return premium, well then we'll accept that. Yeah. So basically, the ref- reference portfolio is the absolute lowest cost, cheap and cheerful, yep. um, real world. Uh, outcome that an investor our size can actually achieve. So I don't believe there's a cheaper way of doing doing it other than what we will have later this year. Um, we've got eighty percent of that um, that saving in 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 play right now. Yeah, yeah. Now I mentioned Damien because uh, a while ago I've interviewed him for our, our newsletter. And the, the Cook Island Super Fund has sort of an interesting history where super became mandatory. Um, the, the fund started investing it, and then the members went, hold on, we don't have any choice here. And uh, <laughs> why don't you put some choice in place for us? Um, I think it even played out in court. But um, what is sort of the experience now? Have, have Do members actually make choices across the, the different investment options, or is it much like Australia where I don't know, 90% is in the default option? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. Yeah, look, it actually went to the Privy Council, which in 
in the Cook Islands and I think still in New Zealand is still the highest court. I think New Zealand's actually just recently removed it, but the the Privy Council in London. So uh, that was a very expensive challenge, but it was good in terms of in terms of it actually really clarifying legislation and and what was the intent of the legislation and the reason for the super fund. And the reason for the super fund was for this post retirement income. We commute into a pension for life, uh, so that really brought it into focus. So that was number one. One of the other issues that was discussed was how compulsory it was for workers, and so we've got universal coverage across the country. And then the third was this issue of, 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 of choice. So they put in place the choice. After five years of them having choice, I joined, 95% of our funds were still in the, the original default. <laughs> um, we 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 did a number of it's a small country so you can go around various workplaces and just talk to people yeah and um it's now down to about 85 okay uh, so two years later people have been moving and people have understood the value of that and also we had five years history where we showed a growth uh, balanced and conservative fund and and growth had outperformed even in in 2022 uh, the conservative fund, it's, it was a little embarrassing, was not performing uh, as as well <laughs> as the growth. But, um, you know, there was a fixed interest, there was a, there was a route of fixed interest markets as well as equity. So, um, it, yeah, they, they all performed in a similar sort of vein. So all of our members can see the, the wisdom to a longer-term investment in taking on more growth in their in their personal risk. The default has now changed to the balanced as of this year. We're shifting that this year. Um, you know, we took a lot of legal advice on that and so forth. And it's, it's, it was, it was actually quite easy to show that the interest the trustees interest for the long-term benefit for the members is, is best served by taking an adequate risk over the length of time. That they'll be invested with us. Um, so, yeah, the choice is changing, but it almost comes down to marketing too. If you call something the conservative fund, who isn't going to choose that <laughs> with their money? You know, it's like the C stands for. I I I came with another couple of suggestions as to what the uh, that we should change the name to, but I and and when we speak to members, it's great speaking to real members and on a small island we all know that they're related to us or you know my, my wife teaches their kids or they're our neighbors or something so it becomes fairly personal very quickly but you you talk to people who don't come from this industry who who bring an intelligence that's just realistic yeah and they're swayed by things like a name Yep. Conservative sounds great, and then they're almost annoyed at us. And the great thing about Cook Islanders is culturally they never hold back. You are in no <laughs> uncertainty as to what they think of you. They will. They're very outspoken. A vigorous democracy, uh, and, uh, and they'll say they're almost angry with you as to why. Why didn't you tell us this earlier? Yeah. Why didn't we not understand? We understand risk and return. We understand the issues of um, you know volatility on stock markets, but we didn't understand over the medium term how that can change. You know, so you know how that how how a positive equity risk premium <laughs> ultimately translates into a forty year accumulation period outcome, which is better than what we thought was conservative. It yeah. redefines conservative, and in the popular imagination of ordinary people who are clever, <laughs> you strip away all of our of, of our you know the, the the phraseology of our profession, and they actually speak to true sense. So that's what I've discovered in the Cook Islands. They're they're very astute people. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I I had similar conversations about the names of investment options here in Australia, where. I knew some of my friends were in conservative options. And no matter what I said, they're like, no, I'm conservative. And I think until I said, mm. well, this is not a conservative option. This is a guarantee yeah. to fall short on your retirement funds when they sort of understood what I was talking about. Yeah. But the, the name of an investment option is actually quite important. Very important. 
yeah. And look, we, we translate everything into Maori as well. So the, the Reo Maori of the uh, Kukuyarimi, the Cook Islands uh, for the Outer Islands. And it's, it's very interesting trying to find the words to describe investment concepts in a different language. Yeah. In, 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 and, and, you know, in a language from people who are fishermen and, uh, and weavers, you know, so it's fascinating, but it's, it, it has equivalents and there are ways to translate that. And then the meaning of words becomes all the more important. Yeah. And in terms of what they really convey, you know, as an investment professional, that's fascinating. Yeah. So how close did you get involved in sort of member education? And I ask this because uh, a while ago I did a podcast with uh, Fijoy Chatterjee, who was the CIO of the Hawaiian State Pension Fund. And he said that, you know, they had a fairly sophisticated investment strategy in place with hedge funds and everything. But he also had to walk down the street and explain to his neighbors what he was actually doing because they were all interested <coughs> yeah. in his fund, right? I mean, I can yeah. imagine that it would be sort of a similar circumstance. Oh, it certainly is. And, um, yeah, look, I think um, my wife taught the Minister of Superannuation's son. You know, <laughs> so you have a government <laughs> minister <laughs> on the PTA. So you have those sorts of situations. So it is it is very uh, proximate is how yeah. I call it. And, uh, yeah, it's um, – yeah, but, look, that's nice. I think that's actually grounded and it's valuable. And, and you know, through the lockdown period where we had no tourists on the island and, you know, we, we saw people financially struggling and uh, you are in a country that's not a developing country. It's a fairly well-off country in many respects, but it's a low-income country. Certainly compared with Australia, people just don't have the same access to resources. And this is meaningful money. So you understand the value of us doing a good job. You understand the value of our costs, for example. You understand, and it actually becomes personal to you when these they are your neighbors these are people that you you share food with you know we um, lots of things grow in Rarotonga you can part a fence post and it'll grow so I'm getting (laughs) this guy's handing bananas across the fence for me or bringing some pawpaw around or you know uh, getting some fruit from the orchard you know so those sorts of very real issues where where food is shared if you like you suddenly recognize the the true value of working for members i think the uh, the island's population is also a, a very tight community uh, we've seen that in sort of dealing with a, a lot of the different funds in the different islands do you have much sort of exchange with with sort of peer funds in the region i know there was when we we originally started talking about private equity and venture capital and i know there's some initiative of uh, new zealand super that uh, is helping out some of the funds with getting exposure to venture capital but what, what, do you have any sort of dealings in your job with that yeah yeah look so that's that's actually a, a big plank of, of of sort of our outreach across the pacific we have sort of a, a professional association of super funds across the pacific and the Pacific Island Investment Forum. And we've been um, working hard during the lockdown period of trying to work with the World Bank and, um, well, we had some IFC funding to help us get some experts and so forth, but we had to shape that, then galvanise some sort of uh, you know, um, accord amongst the groups. But, uh, yeah, we're a grouping of, of 20 funds from... 12 different countries across the Pacific. Uh, it represents about $16 billion in Australian dollars, uh, but 1.6 million individuals. So this is the retirement savings of 1.6 million citizens across the great blue ocean, the Moana Nui Akiba of the Pacific. And we're all bathed by the same waters. So there's a... Yeah, there's a nice connection amongst us all from that point of view. Um, and look, it's it's always a joy. I you know I, I grew up in Auckland and and I I that Pacific culture sort of ordinary for me. And 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 I forgot when my Australian wife and my Australian daughter come come to uh, Rarotonga how special it is. And I. Um, you know, Rarotonga is a, a you know, vibrant local culture, but then so Samoa, Tonga, and uh, um, I enjoyed my time in PNG for the same reason. 
you know, there's a specific feel and the way people do business and the friendliness. Um, very astute, but won't always tell you straight off. So there's a few codes, ancient cultures, ancient cultures, and I think our rather new Antipodean Anglo culture uh, fails to recognise the true depths of subtlety and nuance in old cultures. So that's fascinating. It's lovely to be part of that. And uh, so, look, we, we're, we're doing more and more together. In fact, it culminated after the, the whole lockdown. As soon as the, as soon as the borders were open, we very hastily organised a conference. The New Zealand Super Fund very kindly uh, offered us a venue in Auckland. Most of us could get there. Within about a month or two of the borders opening, we were there in Auckland. We signed a memorandum of understanding where we would – actually de deliver a a joint platform for making investments across the Pacific uh, together. So it's a club. Um, it's a um, – you co-opt into it, if you like. We haven't set it up as a separate fund, um, but there are rules of engagement, uh, stage-gated process where if you're interested in this asset – um, you commit to providing staff for the team. We commit to a budget for due diligence. We move to uh, a uh, preliminary investment committee stage. We then go out to the, the funds themselves. There's a veto at different points, but after you pass that point, you can't revisit uh, those issues. So trying to get the decision-making governance right amongst a collective uh, is not always easy, but you know, you think back. This is a little bit, perhaps, like the IFM in the very, very early days. Yeah. Um, and in fact, we're even thinking that, you know, we have funds that are at different stages of their own development. Uh, for example, we have one fund that's uh, very keen to do uh, a deal we're looking at at the moment, but they actually don't have an allocation for direct deals, so they need to go back to their board and actually look at the processes or the policies involved in that. So we actually could go back to this concept in the same way that IFM did in the early days. It was actually a collective advisory before they started developing their products. Yeah. So we'll never be as large as them, but they're a great model of, of how a collective can be forged into a very quality organisation that reflects the values of its constituents, but also uh, – galvanizes it nails its its colors to the posts of global best practice so we're saying we need global we need demonstrably global best practice in investment process and governance and approach and that we have a period of harmonization of all of our super funds across the pacific really getting to the same level in terms of policies even hr policies if you, if, you, if you're going to if you're going to have on staff from, say, Samoa, Tonga, Cook Islands, and bring them to do a deal in, say, Kiribati or something. Who pays for that? How do they – what's their accommodation like? What do they – who does their work when they're back home? And these are all lessons I learned by doing – trying to do club deals in Melbourne amongst super funds. We thought, <laughs> oh, we're all super funds, right? But you try to get – there's not one board that will have reliance on somebody else's due diligence. <laughs> you know, there are – and, and you know, you'd find the investment committee of one would meet on one day and, and the other one wouldn't meet for two weeks. And, uh, you know, one fund had um, all the infrastructure they needed and another fund um, didn't. And so their pricing um, uh, latitude was different between the two. So you end up with, with different super funds that are all meant to be the same. In, in a room and at, and you sort of coordinate herding these cats and then you get a Venn diagram of their various conditions and right in the middle is the sweet spot where you can make the make the, the bid and then the, the vendor wants reliance from you that you will um, work at the speed of commerce. Those are the similar sorts of lessons that we're now putting in place in Pacific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe we'll finish up with one uh, topic that uh, we almost can't get away from, um, ESG and climate change. But I think mm. in, in the context of the Pacific, it's it's quite a pertinent one. We know that uh, some of the islands uh, are facing some very serious problems with climate change. Is that something that um, you already start incorporating into the portfolio as well, decarbonisation? 
Yeah, look, it's um, it's an interesting one. I remember in PNG, uh, there was a you know, it's a it's a oil and gas sort of exporting country. They were almost um, uh, ESG was sort of of less relevance. I thought perhaps in the in the you know the low lying atolls of the Pacific, there'd be more interest. There often isn't. Uh, there's a there's a sense in developing countries that it's a rich country's problem, and and if we do it. Uh, if we do anything, it, it'll, it, it won't affect what really happens. What you know, it's, it's Australia's brown coal going to China that's really uh, poisoning us. Um, so it's 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 not us. So there's that attitude, I think, and that's fairly prevalent. Um, to be fair, and but there is that other sense of how much return from an investment point of view are we going to get from an ESG product? When I was looking at ETFs for our reference portfolio, I found I wanted as simple as possible and as few as possible. And often, you know, you get you get world and then um, uh, or IFA, you know, and then US and so forth. But I, one of the products offered to me by a very large ETF provider. Um, Said, oh, and this is the ESG version, but it gives you the the global coverage. If you if you if you go the non ESG version, you need to stitch together the entire world through the various regions. Uh, you've got you know a, another couple of ETFs, um, so that would sort of solve your number one priority, getting global um, equity coverage, for example. So that's good. And he says, oh, and it's ETF, and and, and so it's um it's ESG. Um, positive for your for your board should they be interested and I said I'm sure they will what's the price and you know this three the three basis point for non ESG and this was like 12 or 14 or something for the ESG version I said but won't it behave differently oh no it's uh, I'll share that I'll send you the, the the correlation and uh statistics and it's all it it, it 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 behaves almost exactly the same it just costs three or four times as much Correct. So the cynic in me could say, well, that's marketing. Um, but I think the positive is, and I think the uh, glass half full in me, is that actually uh, a lot of good ESG practices are actually becoming mainstream in ordinary industries. And um, I've seen this in a number of places. I've even heard from, you know, specialist ESG investors. They're looking at more and more companies in the old economy because they've got big R&D budgets and they've also got uh, a, a, you know, a, arguably a, a higher motivation to improve their ESG score. So I think that's a positive. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting going back to our board and, you know, one of our board members says, oh, I told you so, it's all just marketing. <laughs> another, another, and I said, no, no, I'm trying to glass half full. It's going mainstream. Um, look, who knows what the truth is? Yeah. Uh, but, once again, I come down to the fact we're a small country, we're a very small fund. So I just couldn't hand on heart say, hey, because we, we're, you know, we haven't signed up to you in um, climate change for pension funds uh, accord. We haven't. But if we had, you know, we might feel compelled to pay the 12 basis points. But I, in the, in the great scheme of things, I find it hard to justify so actually, so we're now shifting to actually just measuring our conventional portfolio and seeing what the ESG score is. So we're doing that this year, and we'll get some accurate statistics to see. And 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 I may be pleasantly surprised by um, we're not the bad bad guys after all. <laughs> and if my theory is correct, that it's actually being mainstreamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see the results of that. Well, it's fascinating, and it was a great discussion. I've got to say, at our, at our you know Pan Pacific group of super funds, you know the New Zealand Super Fund hosted their one uh, the, our conference in uh, in Auckland. They were great. They gave us a lot of uh, momentum and 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 uh, impetus really to bring it back to the Pacific funds. So we all come out with improved um, ESG policies and um, really looking at that. In a, in a, we're motivated to look at it in a much more fine grained and measured way. Which is a positive, right? Yeah, for sure. We all help each other, you know. Yeah. Well, David, that was a very interesting discussion. And thank you very much for your time. You've been very generous with your time. And uh, thanks for participating. A pleasure. It's my Sunday today. So uh, with the dateline, so I had the time. So thank you. I'll get back to work. <laughs> well, thanks for making time in your weekend. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. 
for more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.